When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Okay, I'm here with Grandmaster Ben Feingold, another old friend of mine, um, one of America's um, stalwarts in the chess scene, great educator and teacher. Ben, thanks for coming on. Sure, thanks, Ben. I, I enjoyed the fact that when I asked you uh, if you would like to come on this podcast, you said, I wouldn't mind doing that. So that's the kind of enthusiasm we're looking for from our guests here. Exactly. Well, it's well known in the chess world that it's all about the Benjamins. So yes. when you asked me, I knew I was going to do it. <laughs> yes. And uh, a fun fact, Ben Feingold and I and Jennifer Shahadi lived in the same building briefly in uh, the year 2000, I believe it was. Yeah, 1999 to 2000, yeah. I didn't do very well in the building quads. <laughs> That's that's why we're old friends. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And speaking of, um, so you just moved to Atlanta, is that correct? That's right. Um, I lived in St. Louis for almost seven years. Um, I got hired by the chess club there uh, to be the grandmaster in residence. And then eventually um, they made it a rotating position where there would be a different resident every month or so, which actually made more sense. In fact, I suggested that to them. <laughs> like the first year I was there, because I thought for the people who came to the chess club a lot, it might be getting boring to see the same person every day, you know, forever, um, when basically the, the finances weren't the issue. And so now they've had, I mean, probably half the grandmasters in the world have been to the chess club in St. Louis and done some kind of work there. Um, but then life got in the way, and eventually I, I got engaged to a woman who lives in suburban Atlanta, and um, so now I live in Atlanta, but I still do about 95% of my work in St. Louis. So I'm really understanding the purpose of airplanes now. Racking up the frequent flyer miles, I suppose. Exactly. So when you were a Grandmaster in residence, did you actually get a residence? Um, that would have been nice. Um, it's a little bit different than it was when I started. Basically, uh, I lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan, 
And I moved to St. Louis. Um, I found a place to live uh, that was about a block from the chess club. And I was on salary. So whether I did a lot of work or a little work, I got paid the same. I guess like a lot of jobs. And I was very gung-ho at the beginning. Um, in fact, uh, I didn't have a schedule. They just I had to show up when I had to show up if there were classes or private lessons. But I actually showed up every day uh, for the first four months. Uh, I was there all day because I really love the chess club there. And if you haven't been to St. Louis, um, I recommend highly going to the chess club there. It's a lot different than anything that anybody's uh, witnessed before as far as chess clubs in the U.S. go. Um, it's between 6,000 and 7,000 square feet. It has eight bathrooms, and it has room for about 140 players to play chess. And, um, well, since they've opened, a lot of things have changed. Um, it's not just for the regular club player. As everybody knows, the Sinkfield Cup and U.S. Championship, U.S. Junior Championship, U.S. Women's Championship, and many other top-level events uh, are played at the chess club. And so there's a lot of things to do there for the average player and, and for the grandmaster. So, uh, in fact, I'm still doing mostly that. I just spend half my time in Atlanta and half my time in St. Louis. And um, now if you're a grandmaster, quote-unquote, in residence, um, they do have what are called chess houses. And um, for those of you who are old enough to remember, a few years ago in the uh, metropolitan San Francisco area, there was a grandmaster house, which a lot of chess players lived in. In fact, I was there once right before they, they stopped existing. And St. Louis has a couple of those where if grandmasters come from out of town or they're working at the club, then that's that's where they stay. So things have changed a little bit, but uh, they've been changing for the better. Well, let's hear more about the Grandmaster House in Saint, in uh, San Francisco before we get back to St. Louis. Well, that was interesting. It was uh, basically what I expected it to look like. They were basically uh, quote-unquote chess bums living there. And um, it was a house that was you know relatively large, shared by... I guess, between three and five chess players. And, of course, they weren't all grandmasters, but, you know, the grandmaster house is a good name for it. Um, in fact, yesterday I was watching uh, the Pro Chess League, and one of the commentators was Jesse Cry, and he was one of the inhabitants of the of the old grandmaster house uh, there in, um, I'm not sure what town it was in. It, it wasn't San Francisco. It was, you know, one of the small towns, maybe 20 miles away. Um, and again, I was only there once, but it was just what I expected. Um, I was actually there with an old girlfriend, and when she asked to use the restroom, everybody sort of looked at each other, which is what I expected. <laughs> That's funny. Like, is this restroom, is this good enough for somebody who doesn't live here to use? <laughs> and um, anyway, it was just a place where you know good chess players, international masters, masters lived and studied chess together, and you know, it was like a home base. And right now in St. Louis, there's actually two chess houses um, for people who come to the chess club, uh, mainly for grandmasters, international masters, but basically anybody who's working at the club or the Hall of Fame who needs a place to stay for a few days, um, they have room for several people. And, of course, it's not like the one that was in uh, the San Francisco area because the, the ones in St. Louis are quite nice. And have you noticed a change in – we all know the effect that uh, Rex Sinkfeld and the St. Louis Chess Club have had on the U.S. generally, but have you noticed a change in St. Louis in particular in the chess enthusiasm? Yeah, not only in the chess enthusiasm, but I, I noticed that uh, a lot of the general population of St. Louis, people who aren't necessarily chess players, are aware of the chess club and, and the Hall of Fame. And sometimes it, it took them a while, and they were sort of embarrassed. They 
they were like, yeah, this is a really well-known chess club, and we have grandmasters coming into big tournaments. And I didn't realize that we even had one for, for several years. But now that the chess club has been there for eight years, um, it's, pre- it's a pretty well-known uh, for the local people. And not only that, it's a big tourist attraction. There's, of course, the world's largest chess piece that's outside the Hall of Fame, which is across the street from the chess club. And uh, a lot of people come from out of town just to – well, just to see everything once uh, so they don't miss it because it's uh, it's so much different than other chess clubs where you're sort of going into a Barnes & Noble once a week for a couple of hours and hoping people don't trish you while you're playing your game. But, uh, uh, yeah, the, the local chess scene, of course, everybody in St. Louis who plays chess goes, goes to the chess club and knows about it, and um, they have a lot of tournaments. And I think a lot of people don't realize that – you know, since the chess club is famous outside of St. Louis for having these monster tournaments like the Singfield Cup, that you know the day-to-day operations of the club are for just the local player. You go, you go in, and there are people I know who come almost every day just to play casual chess. And most of the tournaments at the chess club, over 90% are just for the casual tournament player. And even there are tournaments for beginning players. And some of the scholastic tournaments will get upwards of 50 to 100 kids. So, I mean, it's a real chess club. It's not just, you know, for the strong grandmaster. And um, that's that's the great thing about the St. Louis club is they've really been inclusive as far as having every level of player, every kind of chess player, and even people who don't know how to play chess. They'll, they'll teach you how to play, get you going in classes, and, and get you playing. So it's, uh, it's really nice not only for the strong player, but for the local community and for the beginner as well. And do these casual tournaments still have the entry fees that you would find everywhere else in the world? Yeah, in fact, when I started working there very early in 2010, one of my suggested tournaments that they, you know, they were just starting up, so they really weren't sure what to do, is we had a beginner's unrated tournament for players who were rated under 1,000 or unrated, uh, and entry fee was just $5. And... You know, first prize was either a membership to the chess club or maybe the USCF. And these tournaments became so popular that it used to be one tournament. Then they separated it to two tournaments on different days, one for adults and one for kids. Then they had to separate the kids tournament for K through three and then fourth and above because there were too many people showing up. It was getting too crowded. And those tournaments became very popular. One of the things I believe, because I'm not only a, a chess grandmaster, but I'm also a tournament director and organizer, uh, is that there aren't enough tournaments in the local areas that cater to beginning and novice players. A lot of the tournaments have nice prizes for masters and grandmasters. And a lot of players who were rated, let's say, between 300 and 900, they don't want to go to a tournament and you know get zero out of five and lose all their games quickly. They would like a place where they can play people of their, their own strength. And if there's more beginner tournaments where people aren't afraid to go and, and lose all their games and play people of their own strength with entry fees that are very small. And I think this is very important to have tournaments that are unrated because it can be pretty daunting the first time you play. You go to a tournament, you've never played one before, so not only are you probably going to lose all your games, you have to join the U.S. Chess Federation, you have to pay an entry fee. It can be quite expensive. So I think you know, the first time, the first few times you play chess – it shouldn't be such an expensive endeavor, and it shouldn't be getting beat up on. You should be able to play other players like yourself. And that's one of the things, again, I've said before, that the chess club in St. Louis does well. We cater to all kinds of chess players. 
And even though I live in Atlanta and I'm starting my own chess center in the fall, uh, I still go to St. Louis a lot because they have chess for everybody there. Yeah, we're um, eager to talk about your chess center in Atlanta. There are rumors posted on Reddit about it, but now you can out the actual details. But first, uh, one last question So, regarding St. Louis. So are you still mm-hmm. salaried with them or are you just working a la carte for them now? No, actually, after working there for about two and a half years, um, we had sort of a parting of the ways where I would be salaried, and they would they had like the rotating GM position. The first grandmaster who was a, a resident after me, after I stopped being a salaried employee, was Yasser Sarawan. So that was uh, you know four-time U.S. champion, and at that time one of the, if not the strongest U.S. player ever until you know Hikaru came along and Wesley So and Fabiano Caruana. But I mean a very successful American tournament player. And having Yasser there, you know, teaching classes and giving private lessons was really nice for the local players. And the club realized that, you know, me not being salary anymore and just having a rotating position was actually a blessing because they could get lots of strong grandmasters like Yasser there for two weeks or four weeks. And right now, as you said, I'm a la carte. Uh, I work there. I, I, I make the joke that uh, ever since I stopped being a salaried employee, I work there even more. Um <laughs> I get hired all the time to go to St. Louis, and I'm guessing in 2017, I'll probably spend maybe 40% of my time working at the chess club and 50 to 60% here at home in Atlanta. Um, in fact, just recently, I got invited to two Grandmaster tournaments there, one in February, one in March, and then March-April is going to be the U.S. Championship. I've been hired to do commentary uh, for the live audience, along with Alejandro Ramirez, and I expect to teach three chess camps there in the summer and to do commentary for the U.S. Junior Championship. There's always events going on there, and they like my commentary, and I know everybody who works there, and they've known me for a long time. So I usually am the one that gets hired pretty quickly. And they like to hire new, new people also. People are interested in coming to the club. A lot of grandmasters from Europe and all over the world have come for a week or two just to, to see what the chess club is like. So I think it's actually better for everybody that it's not just a one grandmaster chess club and you say this you see the same person for years but they get a cornucopia of you know lots of grandmasters in the world. It's not only good for me, it's good for the club, it's good for everybody and the people who live in St. Louis, they have a real treasure there because they get to see almost all the best players in the world th- throughout the year. It's just great. And I think think most people listening to this will know this, but the, a lot of those lectures, I don't know if it's all of them, end up on YouTube. And uh, I know that you've got quite a following online as to some of the other grandmasters who've lectured there. That's right. Um, at some point, you know, they started recording all of the lectures that were done by the various grandmasters. Again, in 2010 and 2011, it was just me. And occasionally they would have a guest lecturer. But now... Um, it's funny, the people, the, the what I call the YouTube people, the people who like to, to make comments online, um, they, they're easily confused because since for several years it's been the case that they have a rotating position, so it'll be me, and then two weeks later it'll be Varakobian, and then two weeks later it'll be Esther Sarawan, and then two weeks later it'll be Alejandro Ramirez, and like this. And people who have their favorites, let's say I'm the favorite of some people, I'm probably the least favorite of some people also. I'm like the Howard Cosell of chess commentating. But anyway, uh, people are like, Ben Feingold, he, he just made five or six lectures that I saw over the last two weeks, and now there's no more Feingold. 
is he not working there anymore? Where's Feingold? And they don't realize it's a rotating position. There's a different grandmaster every month. And I usually put in the comments the next time I'm coming back because then they know when the videos will show up again. And um, it turns out in 2017, I'm going to be the resident the whole month of June. So the people in June are going to get their fill of Feingold. And then when it's the first week of July and the new resident shows up, they're going to be complaining again. Did, did he get fired again? What happened? <laughs> but uh, they don't realize that it's a different different person every every few weeks. And this way, if you do have your favorites, and a lot of people you know, prefer other people to me, they like Yasser, they like Var, they like Alejandro, they like Eric Rosen, they like everybody. And you get to see you know, commentary and, and lectures and lessons by your favorite players. And of course, since they're all saved on YouTube, and there's actually more than a thousand videos, if you can believe that, that are on the Chess Club YouTube page, you can go back and see all your favorites. So there's no reason to complain if, if I'm not there for a few weeks. I'll be back, and my videos are all there. And to me, it's free content, and the grandmasters are all good at lecturing, so it's, it's a real godsend for, for the chess lover. Yeah, I agree. I wish that I could keep up with it all. I mean, it's just amazing content and um, so so much um, quality instruction available for free. So are you going to replicate that in Atlanta? Well, again, we're going to be sort of a very mini version of the chess club in St. Louis. Um, the name of our chess center is going to be the Chess Club and Scholastic Center of Atlanta. And actually, some people probably think we're, we're stealing the St. Louis name and just putting it in Atlanta, but... Um, that actually was our fourth or fifth choice of a name. We wanted to have something like the Atlanta Chess Center, Atlanta Chess Club, something like that. But those names were actually already taken by existing or previously existing chess clubs here. So we wanted to have a new name, a new chess center. And we are very interested in having online content. We have a website already, which is the Chess Club and Scholastic Center of Atlanta. And actually... It's funny that we're doing the podcast today. Today is the day we officially got our business license, which we applied for two weeks ago. So it took a little longer than we expected. So we're now in LLC in, in Georgia, and we have a Twitter page. We have a Facebook page. We're getting the Internet stuff all taken care of. Uh, we're going to have a YouTube page. Um, probably not the quality that you would see from St. Louis, but we'll do our best to bring a quality product for free to the, to the public and hopefully uh, the local people in Atlanta will, will see the videos and see our website and, and come join our club. And um, we're going to be sort of a, you know, like a smaller version of the St. Louis Club. We're not going to be you know, 6,500 square feet and have eight bathrooms, but we'll, we'll be as nice as we can be. And we're going to try to do things in the right way, the way St. Louis. And to some extent, there's another chess center, which some of your listeners may know in Charlotte, called the Charlotte Chess Center which actually I've worked at twice for a period of three to four months. And they've also used the St. Louis model, of course, without the Rex Singfield backing it up. Um, so everything's on a smaller scale, but we try to provide chess tournaments, chess classes, camps, and casual play for the local player. And to me, it's very strange this doesn't happen in Atlanta because Atlanta is such a big city. Um, they've had some chess clubs that didn't necessarily make it financially, and in my opinion, weren't as nice as the one we're going we're gonna to open up. But, um, I mean, a, a, a city like Atlanta, cities like Charlotte, St. Louis, and other big cities, New York, San Francisco, you, you need a place to play chess and have chess competitions and not just meet in hotels and in bookstores. And 
you know, because I think of the St. Louis model, I think a lot of chess clubs like this are going to open up throughout the country and people are going to try to make a go of it like we're trying to make a go of it here in Atlanta. Do you have business partners uh, in this endeavor? Right now, the, the business partners are my wife, Karen Boyd, and myself. Um, in fact, the reason I met Karen was because of the chess club in St. Louis. Um, Karen and her son, Archer, are both rated in the 1300s, 1400s. And uh, Karen happened to go to St. Louis because her older son uh, was in a math camp at Washington University. And since her younger son was six years old and rated 1400, she was hoping there would be a chess camp since it was the summer. And she found the chess club in St. Louis. She enrolled her son into a couple of chess camps that were during her older son's math camp. And I met them there. And um, I guess, as they say, the rest is history. Um, they're very avid chess players, and their uh, Archer and Karen are very well known on the chess scene here in Atlanta. And we both actually wanted to start, you know, some kind of chess club. And uh, we both had the similar ideas, and we decided to make a go of it. Uh, of course, financially speaking, we're going to. Uh, one of the reasons we're starting the chess club in the fall and not right away is we're going to do several months of fundraising and finding a good place for the for the the center and getting the word out so everybody knows about it. So we're not going to have business partners, but uh, as Rex Singfield likes to say to me, no donation is too large. So <laughs> if anybody wants to donate, you can go to our website, Chess Club and Scholastic Center of Atlanta, and probably within the next week or two, we're going to have a PayPal button up. So it's very important. No donation is too large. <laughs> yes, that that is uh, words to live by. Well, it sounds great. I, I wish you a lot of luck with it. Um, are, have I don't have you ever done anything like uh, this businessy before? Well, I've been I've been involved in businesses like this. Of course, I worked at the chess club in St. Louis for many years, not in the capacity, of course, as a manager and owner, but uh, in Ann Arbor uh, about 15 years ago, there was a chess club, chess center uh, called Chess Express, and. We had chess tournaments, and we had a club, and we sold things online and to the public, and we were in downtown Ann Arbor, and that existed for several years, and I was basically second in charge. There was the owner of the club who was a Class A player, and uh, he was the financial guy, and I was there day-to-day -day running the club and directing the tournaments and getting people to show up and things like that, and I actually did that for several years, uh, so... Eventually, we became sort of an online store because financially that was much more beneficial, and we were selling chess equipment and all kinds of chess-related things online, and we actually got pretty good at that. So that business part of the chess club, I got to know quite intimately, as well as other things that are related to chess clubs. So I've been around the chess club scene for a long time, and I've seen them you know, be successful and fail and what works and what doesn't work. And we're going to try to have a business model of doing things that work, that are popular, that make money, that the, the people enjoy and that we're able to do. And if it gets too big, we'll have to hire some employees. But otherwise, it'll just be me and Karen running the show. Uh, so what what is your sense of what doesn't work for chess clubs when they fail? Yeah, that's interesting because... Sometimes people try to do too much. They want to have big tournaments with huge prize funds and lots of people show up and they do things that may be sort of risky or they'll hold classes or um, lessons that people aren't necessarily interested in. So one thing, for example, I want to do, I want to have classes, you know, two or three times a week. 
sort of like they do in St. Louis. And I'm very interested in getting the local uh, master scene involved. I don't want it to be where it's a Ben Feingold lecture, it's a Ben Feingold lecture, and it just goes on and on for weeks and months. Um, there's a lot of players in Atlanta who are rated over 22, 2300, and I want to get them involved too where if they want to give private lessons at our club or if they want to lecture, uh, you know, once every two or three weeks, and we can get sort of a, you know, a chess scene going here. And I want to have tournaments for scholastic and lower-rated players and beginners, not just for, for master players, and do things that are good for the community and for the general chess population, not just for one segment. So we're going to have classes, we're going to have private lessons, we're going to have chess camps, and we're going to do a lot of things for the young players here. There's actually a very thriving scholastic scene in Atlanta. Uh, I would say a very high percentage of the schools in Atlanta have some kind of chess program, but unfortunately, you know, there's nowhere really to, to go play. You, you know, you play in your school, you try to find a local tournament, but, you know, if you want to go somewhere after school and have a scholastic chess club or just a place for kids to play, that's, that doesn't really exist. So we're going to be providing that for the metropolitan area chess players who are, you know, in middle school, elementary school, even high school, where kids can come play chess. And sort of like the St. Louis Chess Club, we're going to attempt to be open every day because, you know, if, if the club is only open three or four days a week and people can't make it, that's not really helping the, the community. So we want to be open. We want to be there for the general chess player, the average chess player. And we want everybody who plays chess to like our chess club, not just, as I said before, a certain rating level, a certain segment of the population. Our chess club is going to be inclusive for kids, adults, low-rated players, high-rated players. And we're going to try to have events uh, and classes that are there for everyone. Sounds great. We'll uh, we'll have to have you on in a couple of years, and you can update us on how it's going and what you what you've learned from the process of actually opening it. That sounds great. Hopefully, uh, we'll still be there in two years. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned you're playing tournaments in February and March. Um, when you get a chance to play, do you do much preparing these days? Well, that depends. You know, when I play in some local tournaments where I'm the highest rated player and I'm trying to pick up a hundred bucks or just hang out with Karen and Archer who were playing in a tournament. Um, okay. Then I just sort of do what I want. Uh, luckily these are stronger grandmaster tournaments, which, which I like playing in and I don't get to play in those very often because, you know, I'm 47 years old. My rating's not what it used to be. And they're basically getting me to play in GM tournaments so that the young kids can beat up on me. And in fact, one of the GM tournaments I played in last year at the St. Louis club, I think I was the only player over the age of 26, and I was like 46. So that, that seemed unfair. Um, but when I do play uh, in these stronger tournaments, then I do prepare, and I try as hard as I can and hope to get some of the old magic back, which uh, seems to have been missing for a while. Uh, luckily, the tournament in March is going to be one round a day, and most of the GM tournaments in St. Louis are either five or six days because it's hard to get people who can – you know, take 10 days off of their life and play in a GM tournament. But uh, the one in March is one game a day, so I'm going to do a lot of preparation for that. And um, one game a day isn't as tiring as <clears throat> when I'm playing nine games in five days against people who are about the same rating as me. So those tournaments I'm not doing as well as I used to because of my age. But I think one round a day with enough time to prepare, uh, we'll see if I still have anything left. 
So you mentioned your age as uh, holding you back. Do you feel like you don't calculate as well? You're a legendary one-minute player for those who, who oh, don't. Oh, man, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I like to say I don't see anything anymore. I mean, I, I, I sit there for several minutes. I make a move, and I miss just the most obvious stuff. Of course, it doesn't happen every move, but it happens often enough compared to when I was in my 20s and 30s that you can really see a difference. Uh of course, I don't know if I'm getting tired as the game goes on. That's um, that's one issue, you know, having the re- requisite amount of energy that, you know, you did when you were younger. So I, I don't think that's a big issue in my case. I think it's just I sit there for a long time and things that I think were very obvious to me 10, 20 years ago uh, take huge mental energy to, to figure out. And um, a few years ago, I was having dinner uh, sort of by force with, with Yasser and, and Anatoly Karpov. They were playing a match in St. Louis, and the chess club instructed me to take them out to dinner. So <clears throat> we went to a nice place inside the chess club credit card. But I digress. <laughs> um, at one point, I got the courage to ask Karpov, uh, like, what's the reason people who get older, their rating goes down? Is it because... You know, you're tired. You don't study enough. You're you're just you're you lose your powers. What is it? And Karpov was very frank with me as far as his own opinion on himself. He said he thought he was the same as he ever was. He thought if he was 55 years old or 25 years old, there was the same chest strength. But he said there's just the energy level goes down. And he thought his understanding of chess and his calculation ability were the same, but. As the game gets three, four, five, six hours old, and you play several games in several days, he just didn't have the energy he did when he was in his 20s and 30s. And um, he didn't think he lost his powers. He just thought it was it was a physical thing. It was a mental thing that he just couldn't you know, do it for a long period of time for several hours. And this would seem to indicate to me that older players who do lose energy if you play a five- or six-hour game or you play several games in several days – is they would want to play blitz or rapid because then those things wouldn't wouldn't necessarily happen. And I think Karpov has shown, even in the last five or six years, his blitz and rapid ability is still pretty strong. And um, he actually won that match against Yasser. They they drew all their slow games, and then in the blitz portion of the match, uh, Karpov took over. And uh, I guess if the game's going, you know, five or ten minutes, you're not going to really get exhausted during the game. Right. And if you've maintained all of your abilities, then you should be good. I, I can still play pretty reasonable one-minute chess, but uh, I think as, as soon as the game gets four or five hours long, if I play several games, especially two games in, in one day, then you can see my powers diminish. So I think for the most part I agree with Karpov about the older you get, the, the less energy you have for, to, to play a long tournament and long time controls. It just makes it more difficult. Yeah, and considering how Kasparov did in the Blitz tournament in St. Louis, that that theory holds up under that angle as well. Yeah, I mean, actually, Kasparov uh, should have got more points than he did. He was, I think, for the most part, outplaying his opponents and playing better than them. And then, of course, uh, well, as he told me at the tournament when he was complaining a little bit, he he hung three nights in three different games. (laughs) And, um, yeah, just like, and again, that reminds me of me. I can play pretty well sometimes, like I used to, but things like hanging a knight, hanging a rook, missing a check, missing one move, they seem to happen a lot more often than they used to. So my general level of play may be okay, 
But if you're going to make two or three times as many blunders as you used to, that's not going to be good for your performance. Do you have any other uh, Kasparov or Karpov stories from your interactions with them? Wow, ones that I can tell on a podcast. Wow. <laughs> no, um, nobody listens to this, don't worry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's funny, when um, a few years ago when uh, Hakara was working with Kasparov, uh, well known they had sort of a bad breakup, which I guess happens with Kasparov uh, in many things, but uh, it was the last time they had the Melody Amber tournament, so now I'm seeing how old our listeners are. <laughs> But uh, there was a tournament that they usually had, I guess, either in Nice or in Cannes, where they had uh, rapid play and they had blindfold play. And uh, that was fun for the spectators. I'm not sure if the players liked it much, but it was fun for the spectators. And the prizes were pretty large, so all the best players in the world would get invited and play. And you'd see a lot of one-move blunders, especially in the blindfold. Um, in any case, the last one that they had, which was maybe about six years ago, uh, Hikaru Nakamura was invited, and of course, if you haven't played in the in the Melody Amber tournaments and you're a strong grandmaster, you probably aren't playing a lot of blindfold chess. And since you're going to play a lot of blindfold chess, you better do some prep. So since at that time, you know Webster University didn't have you know a million grandmasters, and basically I was the only grandmaster in St. Louis at the time. Hikaru wanted to prepare against me, and uh, what he did is he played blindfold and I did not. And he thought that would simulate the conditions relatively closely. Um, and he won the first game and the next three games were draws. And he was pretty unhappy about that. And I remember at some point between games, there was a phone call from Gary Kasparov and uh, Hikaru ran to the phone in some office and was talking to Kasparov for a long time about one of the games and getting admonished about uh, his endgame play. <laughs> <laughs> Blindfold. So, yeah, it was funny. Work, not only was he working with Kasparov and I assume improving openings and general strategy, he was also analyzing blindfold games with him, preparing for the blindfold tournament. Wow. So, yeah, Kasparov used to do a lot of work with uh, with Akaru. And, um, well, it's also well-known Kasparov for a brief time worked with Magnus Carlsen. So I guess even when you stop playing chess, you're not totally out of it. And uh, the St. Louis club is pretty good at getting people to sort of unretire. We've gotten Kasparov to play. We've gotten Karpov to play. That's that's not an easy thing to do once you you don't play chess for a long time. It's hard to get people back into it. You like the Coachella Music Festival of uh, for chess grandmasters. They're always but, getting they're always getting uh, quote unquote retired bands to come out of retirement and give a concert. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the St. Louis Club is doing that, and I, I'd like to mention one of the. You know, one of the well-known players in the 70s in the U.S. was James Tarjan, who retired for about 35 years, and now he's playing a lot again. I haven't seen him in St. Louis yet, but I expect to. Uh, Tarjan's playing chess again, obviously not at the level he did in the 70s, but it seems like he still enjoys it in, in his retirement. And uh, it's nice to see the players who, you know, we heard of and they were top in the U.S. who stopped playing. We can get them playing again. Uh, one thing I want to mention uh, – one of my good friends, Tua Rachels, who was U.S. champion over 25 years ago, um, well, he hasn't played tournament chess in, in over 20 years, and he's a professor at University of Alabama. He actually comes up to Atlanta occasionally because uh, he has family and friends here, and he actually stopped by my home here a few months ago, and we looked at some chess, and we talked about old times, and he's actually writing a chess book right now. Now, getting him back into chess, that's going to take some doing. <laughs> 
but uh, he does follow chess. He's writing a chess book. He does chess puzzles. So if we can get these former U.S. champions back into chess, people like Patrick Wolf, who's playing in the Pro Chess League and still playing at a very high level. Now, getting Patrick back into tournament chess, that's going to take some doing. But it seems like you know, there's a chess fever and the players don't lose it. The people who don't play chess for many, many years, they still seem to fall on the Internet. They're watching the top tournaments online. And because of the St. Louis Chess Club having all this great online commentary with Yasser Sarawan and Maurice Ashley, Jennifer Shahadi, and Alejandro Ramirez, it's pretty easy for players of the past to follow the, the, the chess scene now and see all the top chess games. And how closely do you follow uh, the international tournaments that are taking place? As we record this, it's been quite a week. Yeah, that's. I've been pretty busy this week basically doing that. Um, I'm very interested in watching the games live, watching the commentary. People like Gustafsson and Svidler and Lawrence Trent. Um, of course, for Gibraltar, I like watching the Ginger GM. Simon Williams is pretty funny. Uh, yes. And there's so many strong grandmasters playing at the same time. It's it's mind-boggling. I I actually woke up late today, and I was upset that I was going to miss some Atacha Steel, and then I noticed it was a rest day today. So I guess I rested when it was the rest day, and then I started watching Gibraltar and seeing... There's a lot of American players playing in Gibraltar, probably at least 10. And um, somebody like Gregory Kaidanov, who doesn't play very much, I saw he's playing there as well, which, which surprised me. But uh, the Gibraltar tournament's getting pretty popular. Uh, I noticed Takaru drew today against a grandmaster that was much lower rated, but that's what happens in open tournaments. You have to uh, you know, play a lot of people that you're not used to playing, a lot of people who are lower rated, but not necessarily bad at chess. Yeah. And one of the advantages of playing in these super GM tournaments, you know, like Vikonze, Tata Steel, is if you draw a game, it's no big deal, but... If you play in open tournaments and you have two or three draws in a row, which doesn't really say anything bad about your chess. I mean, chess is a draw if you play correctly. So if people have the white pieces against you and they're playing well, it's very hard to beat them, but it's not necessarily great for your rating. So it's tough for these super GMs who are playing in tournaments like Gibraltar and Qatar because they have to play open tournaments against players who are two, 300 points lower rated, but those players don't play badly and they look forward to their chance to playing a super GM. And you, we see a lot of upsets and a lot of draws. Yeah, I love watching them. It's like March Madness. It's very exciting because, I mean, let's let's face it. Aroni and Geary having a 40-move draw for the 10th time in a row, it's more interesting to see somebody rated 25-10, a GM you've barely heard of or maybe not heard of at all, you know, giving Hikaru or Fabiano a run for their money and an opening you haven't seen lately. That's really interesting than seeing the same openings, the same players, and the same draws, seeing, you know, fresh blood, and seeing the super GMs, even with the black pieces, feeling like they're forced to win just for rating purposes and for prize purposes. So it's a different kind of chess, and it's really exciting for the spectators. I think it's a really good to have a mix. It's good to have these super GM tournaments and see all your favorite players, and then it's good to see them being fed, you know, to the Lions and being forced you know, to not to not draw with black and win with white, but to win with both colors. And we get to see a lot of unusual openings in these open tournaments. Yeah, and as a teacher, I also think the games can be more instructive, uh, especially for lower-rated players, because you can you can follow the thread. It's like, uh, you know, it's like the older chess games where one player just understands something that the other doesn't or gets some advantage and just slowly 
brings it home. Yeah, we get to see some nice tactics like we saw in the olden days with Morphy and Steinitz. There was a game Topolov won in round one. He was playing a Grandmaster who had a very low rating of 2365, not a high rating for Grandmaster. And this was round one of Gibraltar, and there was a blunder on move 15, which, I mean, it was a tactical blunder. It wasn't, it wasn't a very simple thing, but, of course, Topolov spotted it, took advantage of it, and won the game very quickly. And that's not something you see very often at the Super GM level. So it's very instructive, it's fun to watch, and it's fun when you can see the difference between a Super Grandmaster and just a regular Grandmaster like myself. I don't get to play those guys very often, and I think the reason is, you know, they don't want to see me embarrassed. So, <laughs> Do you have any aspirations of going to a tournament like Gibraltar sometime? You know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind going to Gibraltar, but uh, financially speaking, it's not something on the radar right now. Uh, when I do play in tournaments, there's a financial motive where I'm getting an appearance fee or I'm likely to win a prize. And in a tournament like that, um, that's going to be more of a fun thing. And... Uh, Unfortunately, at this time, my finances do not warrant that. But uh, I guess if I ever get to retire and I want to go get beat up, that would be a fun place to get beat up. Yeah, I was going to ask. I know a couple of years ago you were doing some crowdfunding for, for you to play in tournaments. Um, was that helpful? Wow, that was many years ago. Yeah, that actually was helpful because, you know, playing in chess tournaments is expensive if you're not winning all of them. Uh, I can win a lot of local tournaments, but if I'm going – to the World Open or the Chicago Open or National Open. I'm not really a favorite to, to win a lot of money in those events, and, they're, and they're, they can be expensive. And yet, if I want to play other grandmasters and improve my game, you know, I need to play strong players. So right now, that's not really my main focus. I'm not trying to get better. Uh, if I want to play grandmasters, I can play in some of the GM tournaments in St. Louis. And since I don't really have a lot of aspirations now to improve my game, uh, there's no real reason to travel all over the country and play in strong tournaments anymore. Uh, giving chess lessons, giving classes, working in St. Louis, starting a chess center here, uh, that, that takes up plenty of my time. And on the off chance I do get to play a strong player, then hopefully I can... Last year I was playing in a local tournament here in Atlanta, and unfortunately in the last round I got black against Komsky. And that's not something... That happens very often when I'm playing in a local tournament with not, you know, like a huge prize fund. But this was a Goitschberg tournament. It was a CCA event. And I, I was doing well, so I got I got crushed by Gata. And I usually don't play players of that level in the last three or four years. That's something that I was doing more in my 20s and 30s. But, okay, the occasional, you know, thrashing by a strong player is nice to see if I can still play players at the top level. It seems like I can't anymore, but I can still try. If you did have a couple, like say you were given a blank check to try to improve at chess for a couple years, what what would you do? Wow. wow try to improve at chess at my age. Um, well, I think for, and I recommend to my students, the way to get better at chess is to play stronger players and to play slow time controls and to do a lot of work analyzing your games in the openings. So for me... Uh, I would probably try to play in tournaments where I was one of the weaker players, either a round robin that was, you know, category 11 or higher, or play in open tournaments like Gibraltar that are very strong. Uh, and then I'd have to just do a lot of study. I'd have to do a lot of preparation for, for the tournaments and do a lot, a, lot, a lot better opening preparation than I have right now. 
and it would just be a lot of work. So it would be a blank check to try to get better, but I think more important than the check would be, you know, the the willingness to put all the time in to do the work it takes to play at that level. And, you know, I don't have that kind of drive that I did, you know, that I did 20 and 30 years ago. Now I'm just sort of relaxed and, you know, trying to make money here and there and do chess things that aren't necessarily going to get me better at chess, but be good for the chess community as a whole. Um, so, yeah, I don't really have that drive anymore. And if, if I had to do that, then I would have to really focus on improving my own game and working hard at that. And, uh, and then, yeah, just traveling and going to the strong tournaments. Uh, there's a lot of strong tournaments in Europe in the summer where the open tournaments have 20, 30, 40 GMs. In fact, a good example, I think, coming up relatively soon is a tournament in Reykjavik. Uh, and that's an open tournament, but they're going to have maybe 50 grandmasters. And so if you can somehow get by round one, the game that you're paired down, then you got tough pairings the rest of the way. And tournaments like Gibraltar, Reykjavik, the World Open, I'd have to play in those events against players who were 20, 30 years younger than me, sometimes more than 30 years, and uh, and try to meet, you know, get my opening preparation where I'm not getting crushed right away. And uh, hopefully I can, what we call, old man them. And, right. <laughs> uh, use my old man strength and beat them in an even endgame. It's my only hope. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's the old man game in, in basketball, uh, and, that, and it applies exactly. to chess as well. Um, so if it, what about for your students? Do you have a, um, a philosophy or a, something that you think kids should emphasize or adults looking to improve should emphasize more than other aspects of the game? Yeah, I actually have a lot of philosophies. Um, it seems that most people who are trying to get better focus too much on their opening preparation and not on getting better at chess in general. And... For me, the the two main uh, prescriptions for getting good at chess is play people who are better than you and analyze your games, either with your opponent, with a chess coach, with your engine, or all three, and see what you need to improve on and play better the next time. A lot of people are playing in tournaments where they're not getting enough competition. So if I have a student who's rated, let's say, 2100, and he's playing in some weekend tournament, and he's only paired up once, and he's paired down three or four times, that's unfortunate. I try to get them to go out of town and find stronger tournaments and play people who are better than them and not worry about the results so much, but worry about getting better. So, you know, gaining rating points, getting more confidence, and never offering or accepting draws. The, the more chess you play, the better you get. And if you're taking draws on move 10 or 20 without having a fight, you're not improving your chess game. So I'm really against draw offers uh, for my students, and I'm really against them playing weaker players. I want them to play strong players, and I want them to try as hard as they can and play slow time controls. And I think if people are playing too much blitz and too much bug house, and you know, in between rounds they're, they're playing blitz between, you know, they're just not taking the tournament seriously. I think if they put a lot of effort into their game and they work hard, when they're not at a tournament and then they play good players and they're confident and they improve their game, that they can get a lot better. And uh, you have to love the game, but you have to work hard also. And I think all the effort you put into your game, you'll you'll see results when, when you play in strong tournaments. And some people just want a magic formula. They're like, you're a grandmaster. Give me two sentences so I can go beat everybody. But the two sentences are work hard and uh, play better players. It's not 
be telling you some chess secret. And unfortunately, chess isn't very forgiving because you can play at a very high level for a long period of time, uh, and then one blunder really ruins it. So I, I focus a lot on seeing the opponent's threats, not blundering, and trying to figure out what the opponent is trying to do, as opposed to most chess players, which is spending most of their time trying to figure out what they're going to do. Uh, if you figure out what your opponent's going to do and you don't let them, you're going to lose a lot less often. So I only have a couple more topics I want, wanted to hit on. Um, mm-hmm. You've, uh, I feel like you have the, your finger on the pulse of the uh, international chess scene, so I was curious um, who you think has the best chance of uh, supplanting Magnus, if anyone. Well, I've been very impressed the last several months with Wesley So, and I have to say, many years ago, I'm going to say... 2010, 2011, uh, I was playing in the Spice Cup tournaments in Texas uh, when Susan Polgar was was at Texas Tech, and she was having really strong round robins, and I would always play in the B group or the C group, and they would let the good players play in the A group. And one of the tournaments was the first time I had seen Wesley So, and he was, you know, 2,600 feet A. He was like everybody else in the group. And he had a lot of draws. In fact, I don't remember him winning a game. I think he had something like eight draws and a loss. But when he would analyze the games afterwards with his opponents, I was thinking, wow, this guy's great. This guy sees everything and knows everything. He doesn't win any games, but he really plays well. I was really impressed with his analysis and his understanding of the positions and his opening preparation. And I was sort of surprised that he wasn't doing better. Of course, players the tournament were pretty strong. And, uh, so I actually, I'm not surprised at all to see him, you know, become one of the top five players in the world. And I think over the last six months or so, he's been the best player in the world. And, uh, of course, you can't shortchange Fabiano. Fabiano's great, and he has a universal style, number two in the world. And uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the next world champion after Magnus was, was one of those two guys. And maybe there's an outside chance in the next three or four years, somebody like Wei Yi or uh, let's see, who else was I thinking of? MVL is possible. But it seems to me right now the the two biggest threats to, to Magnus are the American players, Fabiano and Wesley. And they seem to get better every year. They seem to get more confident. They sort of uh, firmly planted their positions at number two and three, although that could change. Maybe by the time this interview is is being played on the podcast. Uh, maybe they'll be number one by then. Who knows? Yeah, it's getting <laughs> so. Pretty. But yeah, those those guys are good, and I I think even though they would be maybe a very slight underdog against Magnus in a match, that it wouldn't be a huge surprise if they they were the next world champion, one of them. And what's your take on the general future of like chess ability? Um, do you think it's going to be solved anytime soon? Are people going to keep? Are people going to Prove at, improve at a more rapid rate now with uh, with computers and the way kids are um, picking it up now? Yeah, it seems like... I don't think chess is going to be solved in my lifetime. Uh, but people are getting better qu- quickly and at a younger age. And a, another example that I probably should have talked about earlier, but I just hadn't thought of it, is Jeffrey Zhang. You know, Jeffrey Zhang's playing in the Tata Steel Tournament. He's tied for first in the B group right now. And, I mean, I've been seeing him play... A lot of the St. Louis club for over the last five years, and I've known Jeffrey since he was 11, and, I mean, he gets better every year. 
his understanding is is miles above a lot of people his own age and and even older. And it seems like the U.S. in particular, with players like Caden Schroff and Sam Sevian and and John Burke and Jeffrey Zhang, and I'm probably missing a couple. Oh, I wonder Liang. I knew I was missing somebody important. Uh, you know, at the age of 12, 13, 14, these kids are already, you know, grandmaster strength. And right now, Jeffrey Zhang and Sam Sevian are strong grandmaster strength. And, you know, they're, they're not going to be 21 for a long time. So I think the U.S. has a lot of good young players, and there's a lot of, you know, other good young players in the world that I think will be top 10, top 20 in the world. I think this will be a normal thing in five or 10 years that, you know, half of the top players in the world are under 21. People are getting better earlier. They're understanding the fact that they're playing other grandmasters at such a young age. You know, can you imagine 20, 30, 40 years ago, somebody who's 15 years old is playing in Vikanze, is playing grandmaster tournaments one after another, is already the world junior champion. This is something we saw when people were 19, 20 years old. We were very impressed. Now, if you want to impress us, you know, you got to be 12, 13, 14 and playing grandmaster level. Otherwise, you're already too old. And I think Anand made a joke about this a few years ago. He said something like, if you're not a grandmaster by some really young age, 13 or 14, you can forget it. Right. So, <laughs> that was pretty funny. But, yeah, I mean, players are getting better at a younger age, and um, they're playing really mature chess. It's not just sack, sack, mate. It's uh, have good endgame technique good opening preparation and play very solid. And the universal style that I see from Wesley So and from Fabiano Caruana, I also see this in Jeffrey Zhang. Jeffrey's playing every opening. He's winning in all kinds of different ways, tactically, positionally, end games. And I really like his game. And I think there's going to be a lot of junior players like him who, you know, soon get in the world's top 20 and, and fight for these first prize of these big tournaments. Chess is a real young player's game now. And, I think because of the internet and computers and the fact that the world's becoming a smaller place, these airplanes can get you places real fast. <laughs> they, they I think uh, tournaments you know, are being held in St. Louis and a lot of other big tournaments, and they're going to have more and more strong tournaments in St. Louis. I think it's a great time to be an up-and-coming American chess player, and I think uh, our Olympic teams and our junior championships really show that. Yeah, it's a, it's quite Im- impressive. Although you're you're depressing me a little bit as a old man who's not very good at chess. So, but uh, it's yeah, fun. Welcome to the club. Fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, you're now living with uh, your wife, and you're so you've um, you've got a teenage stepson now. Is that um, correct? I have a teenage stepson, and I have a seven-year-old stepson. Oh wow! And I have two children of my own. Yeah, I'm a I was twenty-five-year-old and a fifteen-year-old. Oh, okay. So now you remember Spencer from the good old days. I do. I do remember Spencer. He was a fun kid. He's, he's twenty-five years old now, <laughs> and he became a master about four years ago. And he lives in St. Louis, about a mile from the club. And all he does is teach chess. Teaches in schools, the internet, private lessons, and he's making a living off chess, just like his old man. Good, good for him. And uh, is your whole family into chess uh, in Atlanta? Yeah, my wife plays chess tournaments whenever she can, and her younger son, Archer. Uh, her older son is more into math, and he's actually, as we speak, uh, going to Dayton, Ohio for a math tournament. He travels all over the country winning math competitions. Wow. He actually was a tournament player uh, several years ago, but he decided he liked mathematics more, 
And so he's been doing math competitions. He still knows how to play chess, and he sometimes looks at what we're doing chess-wise, but uh, he's not into tournaments anymore. And my daughter was the same way. My daughter was a tournament player a long time ago, and I think when she got to about the age of eight or nine, she decided that was enough. So some people stick with it. Some people find other interests, and uh, that's life. And, and last last question, how are you liking Atlanta uh, lifestyle-wise? I really like it here, and... Uh, you know, again, when I when I moved to St. Louis seven years ago, I wasn't sure what I would think. And with the chess atmosphere there, a new city, I liked everything about it. And Atlanta is the same. There's a lot of chess players here. There's a lot of young chess players here. Um, Atlanta is a huge city, and um, it's different. And of course, since you're asking me in January what I think of Atlanta, right. I think the weather's really good. Yeah. <laughs> and if I was in St. Louis, you know, December, January, you know, it's 20 degrees, 30 degrees, you know, if we're lucky. But uh, the last few days, for example, it was 71 yesterday. Wow. So when it's 71 degrees in January, that's that's nice. I'm looking out the window now. It's sunny. It looks like it's about 65. So I like Atlanta. Nice. Sounds like you're doing some good advertising for your chess club. Yeah. <laughs> chess, it's going to be great. Chess players are going to flock there. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for doing this, Ben. Um, I think people – I mean, I know you, how – I'm friends with you on Facebook. How else can people reach you and find out about the Chess Center? And well, like for finding about the Chess Center or me, uh, I'm basically everywhere on the Internet. Uh, on the Internet Chess Club, I'm Feingold. And on Chess24, uh, Ben2600. Chess.com, I'm CCSCA, Chess Club and Scholastic Center of Atlanta. Uh, we have a Facebook page, uh, the Chess Club and Scholastic Center of Atlanta. We have a Twitter page, Chess Club and Scholastic Center of Atlanta. And, uh, again, I'm easy to find on the Internet. I'm usually watching on Chess24. They have really good live coverage of these events. And usually I'm commentating as well about the games and uh, having people make fun of my comments because I'm usually making illegal moves or hanging my queen. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm trying. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, of course, we're not going to open until September, but uh, we're getting the word out, and uh, hopefully – We'll be as successful as St. Louis, but maybe we won't have as much money as them. We'll have just as much fun. Okay, well, sounds good. Thanks a lot for doing this, Ben. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. To hear more episodes, give feedback, or suggest guests, go to perpetualchesspod.com. If you like the show, please help me out by telling your friends and giving me a high rating on iTunes. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.